All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are about ready to start, so let me open this up with a word of prayer, and then we will jump in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance to be together tonight. We thank you for this great book, The Great Divorce. We pray that you would bless our time together as we try to unpack the truth that is rooted in your word that Lewis expresses in this book. Lord, we all come from days that have been full of all manner of things, and we pray that you would help us to put aside all the things that have distracted us during the day, and that you would open our hearts to whatever you might desire for us to learn this evening. We thank you for this time together and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we have another uh, guess what the tune is, and... You should know this, no pressure, but you should know this. It might have been, whoops, might have been sung in this church recently. There was some of it. Thank you. 
So that is a piece called Eam So Lord Jesus Quickly Come, which is taken uh, straight out of Revelation 21 and 22, and it is one of the great Advent anthems. So it was actually sung last Sunday, uh, but the last line of it says, Eam So Lord Jesus Quickly Come and Night Shall Be No More. They need no light, nor lamp, nor sun, for Christ shall be their all, which is really the message of Advent. But there's a backstory to this anthem, which is quite remarkable. Uh, it is an anthem that was written in 1953 by a husband and wife as they were kneeling, praying at the bedside of their three-year-old son, who was critically ill, and they had been told that he was going to die. And so they were praying, and this, the words to this just came to them from Revelation along with the tune, and they sang it over this little boy as they prayed, and he was miraculously healed. Makes me cry every time I think about it. But that piece is such a reminder in Advent, that Christ is the one who is coming to be the light, to be the healer. And so uh, I would commend it to you. It is uh, not only beautiful, but profound. So uh, let's read our scripture verse together. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths, but you, Keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So I want to just say a word of welcome to all of you who are here in person and all of those who are joining us on the live stream. We continue to get new people every week. It amazes me that people hear about this in the craziest places. But if you are new, welcome. Uh, there are three ways to approach this class. You can be on the beach. Uh, where you don't really do anything except show up occasionally. You don't have to read the book. You don't really even have to listen. You just get what you get, and that's great if that's all you want to do. We're delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel if there's something that piques your interest. Uh, you can read more and do the links that I will send with the email and listen to the music and all of that. Or if you are like me and you are just sort of constitutionally a nerd, uh, you can scuba dive and go down the rabbit hole with all of the handouts and everything else. And speaking of handouts, there was a long handout that you might remember I mentioned a couple of weeks ago of a story called The Celestial Omnibus by E.M. Forster, and I couldn't get the copier to work weeks ago, and so I only had a few copies. Well, I got the copier to work this week, so I thought, well, I'll make a few extra in case anybody wants to go back for that. But there are also, if you're snorkeling or scuba diving, this handout tonight about uh, what the, the author calls arch-natural psalms, uh, the poetry of the great divorce, is really wonderful. It's really short, 
see. It's just four pages, and it's got pictures. So uh, it is not, it's not a big ask, but it will bless you if you will read it. Uh, if you are for the first time here, uh, one of the things we would love for you is to get on our email list. Uh, if you would Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and then just email me, Brian McGravy, we'll get you added to the list, and then you will get the materials we send out each week. Uh, just again, announcing about mere Anglicanism, uh, we are going to go walk through over there tomorrow and decide whether we need to cut off registration uh, based on how many people we have. We're up to about 700 now, and so um, there are people coming, not just speakers from all over the world, but attendees from other countries coming for this as well. So uh, if you are even thinking about it, I would commend you uh, to go ahead and get registered for that. So uh, just a little bit of review about why we're studying this book. First of all, there's a strong emphasis on eternal life that has a vivid description of the awfulness of hell and the glorious beauty of heaven that will make us long for heaven. And we're going to see a lot of that in the chapter tonight. Also, Lewis is dealing in this book with the consequences of individuals and cultures that are obsessed with narcissism and pride, which might make it somewhat relevant for us today. Also, the whole idea of truth as an absolute is under attack in our culture uh, in a way that it never has been before. And the idea that you speak your own truth is held up as the highest good. And Lewis shows us how that is a dangerous practice because it usually means we refuse to acknowledge God's truth. Uh, there also in our culture is so much uh, that you hear in the media about our rights, that we all are entitled to all these different things. And instead of the emphasis that you see in the scriptures on self-sacrifice and servanthood. And then also there's a wonderful way that Lewis has in this book of showing that there are forks in the road of life and that you can't choose every option all the time, that you have to make choices and there are either or choices and there are consequences that result. And then lastly and perhaps most importantly, it is a brilliant rebuttal of the idea of works righteousness, the idea that somehow we can perform and earn our way to heaven and that if we act better and do better, God will love us more, which is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that we are saved by grace alone. And as uh, Jeff Miller is fond of quoting from Ephesians 2, uh, where it says, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. And as he says, dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't do anything. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. But the next two words are some of the most glorious words in the New Testament. But God. God did all sorts of things through Jesus Christ to enable us to come into relationship with him and to experience the joy of salvation. So, chapter 5 last week um, started with two romping lions, and then we see this conversation that took place between a bishop and uh, one of his protégés, a young spirit uh, named Dick. And the bishop's ghost says that Dick was getting very narrow in his points of view and theology and coming to believe in a literal heaven and hell, which, of course, no intelligent person would believe that. And so 
the ghost, uh, this bishop says that this gray town is uh, a place where there's the continual hope of mourning with its field for indefinite progress. And it is in a sense heaven if one only has eyes to see it. And of course the bright spirit says, can you not know where you are? You are in hell. And the bishop's like, oh, there's no need to be profane. And the, the spirit says, you are in hell. And the bishop says, well, I imagine they'll probably tell me why. And he says, well, yes, you were sent there for being an apostate. And uh, this is bold for Lewis to write this in the 1940s, that a Church of England bishop might be in hell. Uh, but the bishop goes on to say, well, I held on to my own truth. I spoke my truth when the doctrine of the resurrection ceased to commend itself to my critical faculties. I preached a heroic sermon about that and that his rejection of the doctrine of salvation uh, through the cross of Jesus Christ was somehow heroic. Uh, but the spirit says, oh, no, 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 no. All we were doing back then was falling in with the spirit of the age that we never actually considered what truth might be. And so the spirit tells this ghost that he can start all over despite having been apostate, leading all these people astray through his false teaching, that all he needs to do is come to Christ and he can be made white as snow. That Christ is in the spirit with power and that the spirit has come a long way and the ghost only needs to repent and believe. But the ghost says, oh no, well I have conditions. I must have free inquiry. I must have a sphere of usefulness and I need to be able to do these things to be important. And the Spirit says, no, 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 you don't understand. You are no longer in the place of inquiry, but in the place of answers. And the eternal fact, which is God, and that he will experience truth, not only with the abstract intellect, but where you can taste it like honey and be embraced by it as a bridegroom in a way that quenches your thirst. And he says to him, we know nothing of religion here. We think only of Christ. But the ghost says, oh, no, 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 no. God to me is just spiritual. He's sweet. He is the spirit of sweetness and light and tolerance and service, which sounds so good. That's like being against mom and apple pie. But... The point of the fact is that the ghost has rejected all belief in God, and then he says, well, by the way, this has been all very interesting, but I've got to go back to hell to deliver a paper to the Theological Society. <laughs> and then he goes off singing this sort of heretical hymn, City of God, How Broad and Far. So several major themes. First, beware of theology that is overly inclusive at the expense of clarity. Beware of church teaching that appears to be faddish or focused on the spirit of the age. Remember that clergy, including this one, of whatever rank are fallible and can be completely wrong theologically. Test everything against the word of God. Remember that absolute truth is real and beautiful and that Christ is the center of all truth and reality. And lastly, beware of conceptions of God that focus only on love and tolerance at the expense of truth. 
And we talked about how there is this continuum that we see of truth on this side and love on this side. And in our culture, you see some people that speak truth, but there is no love, and it's just condemnation and harsh and hateful. And then others that all they say is love, 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 which means I want you to just do whatever you want to do that makes you feel good. Um, But the problem with that is what makes somebody feel good is to jump off the Empire State Building. It's not really loving to let them do that. And so, of course, Christianity holds those two together in a beautiful way um, that no other religion does. And Jesus is the one that tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But at the same time, the word tells us that we are to speak the truth in love so that we can grow up, grow up fully into the image of Christ. So chapter six is very different from chapter five. And one of the things I love about this book is you never know what's going to happen next. It's not the same formula all the way through. And so in this chapter, uh, we get a very different but equally important perspective on what is going on in heaven. So in this chapter, we see Lewis, who's the narrator, being entranced by the beauty of his surroundings. And he's drawn by the robust sound of flowing water that he can hear a long way off, and he hears it, and it just draws him like a magnet. And it turns out to be an enormous and spectacular waterfall that is impossibly large by human standards. And Lewis sees down at the base of it one of the ghosts, the man named Ike, who you might remember on the bus, he's the one that wants to create supply and demand in hell. And so he wants to try to bring back some stuff from heaven he can sell. And um, so Ike is down in the bushes um, trying to find some solid objects from heaven to bring back to set up a souvenir shop in hell. So Ike is next to this remarkably beautiful tree covered with golden apples. We'll come back to that, golden apples. And Ike is trying to collect some of the fruit that's fallen from the tree. But Ike has a problem. Even though he's a big, muscular guy, he can't pick up even the leaves because they're so heavy and so solid and so full of reality. But he eventually manages, through a lot of contortion and screaming and everything else, to pick up this really tiny apple that fell off the tree. And he hides it in his pocket. And the instant he puts it in his pocket, this thunderous voice calls out, fool, put it down. And it was a thunderous voice that also sounded very liquid. And Lewis realizes with great fear and awe and wonder that the waterfall itself was speaking and that though it did not cease to look like a waterfall, that it was also a bright angel who stood like one crucified against the rocks and poured himself perpetually down toward the forest with loud joy. And this voice then tells Ike that there's no room in hell, even for the smallest apple. And then, lest you think that it's just condemnation and judgment, this beautiful, thunderous, loud voice invites Ike to stay and to learn to eat such apples 
saying that even the leaves and the blades of grass would delight to teach him to do so. But Ike is terrified and turns away to flee. So there's a lot going on here, but I want to just, a little quick thing about golden apples. I don't know how many of you remember your Edith Hamilton's mythology or Dallaire's myths or any of that. Um, Greek mythology is something that Lewis lived and breathed, and so it comes to him very naturally. So you may remember the Garden of the Hesperides. I don't know if anybody remembers that. Uh, one of Lewis's favorite things to go back and read in the original Greek, as one does. Uh, but he would read this passage, and in this, the, there's this orchard of trees that bear these golden apples, and they're guarded by these three nymphs who are the, the spirits of the Hesperides. Uh, but the, someone takes one of the golden apples and it becomes the apple of discord because everyone wants it. So Lewis is playing into that, but he's also playing into the Garden of Eden and the idea of that beautiful apple tree there. And so all, all of that is uh, in the background of what's happening here. So there are a number of major themes in this chapter. And again, as you read this book, please read it slowly. It's so easy because we're all in such a hurry and our culture is in such a hurry that you look at a chapter like this that has maybe eight paragraphs in it and you just read it and you think, well, there wasn't much in there. But the problem is that we're too quick you need to chew on these chapters like they are saltwater taffy. Um, they, they will reward chewing just in the same way that taffy does. So the first thing is this whole idea of the extraordinary beauty of every aspect of heaven that embraces all the earthly senses and surpasses them. And I'm just going to go down a little tiny rabbit trail for just a minute, if you will forgive me. Uh, this is one of the reasons that Anglican worship is the way that it is. We try to engage all of the senses when you come to worship. So there is glorious music to hear. There is great beauty to see. There's the scent of flowers and candles to smell. There's the wine and the bread to taste. It is a feast of the senses. And the reason for that is that heaven is not a flat, ascetic, boring place, but a place that is full. Just read some of the descriptions of the marriage feast of the Lamb and the banquet that will be there. And so our worship is designed to give us a foretaste of heaven and to engage all of our senses. So early on in this chapter, Lewis says, before me, green slopes made a wide amphitheater, enclosing a frothy and pulsating lake into which over many colored rocks, a waterfall was pouring. Here, once again, I realized that something had happened to my senses so that they were now receiving impressions which would normally exceed their capacity. So if you know the old expression, words fail me trying to describe an experience, 
What Lewis is saying here is that your normal senses would fail you to be able to even take in the wonder and beauty and grandeur that surrounds you in heaven. But then what he found is that he had somehow mysteriously grown, not in size, but in perception, to be able to take this in. And you will remember if you read the chapter that he's just finished walking on water, that the river was so solid that he was able to walk on it. And it is not an accident if you go and read in the book of Genesis uh, that when Eden is described, there is a river that is running through it, and there's the tree of life, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it is beautiful. And then when you get to Revelation, uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, you see that there is a river that is running through the new heaven and the new earth, and there is the tree of life framing exactly what we saw there in Genesis. And so here we see there is a far green country with a river running through it and this tree of these life-giving apples. So it is that none of that is an accident. And there's so much scripture about this that I would commend to you to contemplate. Uh, but one of those scriptures, and we've listened to an anthem based on this psalm, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And then from 1 Corinthians, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And I want to just pause on this for a minute, because we live in a culture that is impoverished in its idea of beauty. We have bought the lie that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and that whatever you make is beautiful. Whatever anyone says is beautiful, it's beautiful, and that's all that matters. But the fact of the matter is that God is the creator of beauty. And all through scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, when you see commands given about building a tabernacle or a dwelling or a temple for God, there is huge emphasis on beauty. And the reason for that is that God is the author of all beauty. And true objective beauty is rooted in God. And one of the great uh, apologetics for the reality of who God is is the profligate beauty that is unnecessary, that is scattered around this world. In Charleston, we are very fortunate to see beautiful sunsets almost every evening. And there is no meteorological or scientific reason that sunset needs to be beautiful. It doesn't accomplish anything, but it just is. And it is a pointer to the beauty of God. And one of the things that, uh, was perhaps an unfortunate casualty of some of the Protestant Reformation was that it used to be the church understood that beauty was a part of who God is. And sometimes in our uh, desire to control things and to do away with the mystery of who God is, we throw beauty out at the same time. 
But that is a mistake because God is the author of beauty, and Lewis is trying to help us recover those. So the second thing is that dimensions and size in heaven are beyond earthly comprehension. So in the chapter, on earth, such a waterfall could not have been perceived at all as a whole. It was too big. Its sound would have been a terror in the woods for 20 miles. Here, after the first shock, my sensibility took both as a well-built ship takes a huge wave. I exulted. The noise, though gigantic, was like giant's laughter, like the revelry of a whole college of giants together laughing, dancing, singing, roaring at their high works. And I, I love this description because so often we have bought into the image of God that Lewis talks about that so many people have. And he says, so many people envision God as an angry old man up in the sky, looking around for anyone down on earth having fun so we can say, stop it. But the point of this is that Christianity is not boring or dull or gray or absent pleasure and joy, but that it is a revelry. That is such a great word. Reveling means celebrating with every aspect of who you are. A revelry, imagine this, of a whole college of giants laughing, dancing, singing, roaring at their high works. Does that sound boring? No. It sounds awesome. And from the scriptures, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Just think about that for a minute. Many of you watched uh, all of the proceedings in the days before and after the death of Queen Elizabeth II. And there was a lot of beautiful spiritual truth all through that that I would love to talk about, but I'm not going to. Uh, but we saw the throne, and we saw the empty throne, and we saw the footstool. And although the throne was magnificent, and even the footstool was magnificent, they're pretty small. And what the Lord is saying here is that heaven is his throne. Imagine the size of that throne. But remember the size of the footstool compared to the throne. The importance of the footstool compared to the throne. Heaven is God's dwelling place. And then he goes on to say, could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place? And then also in Isaiah, it is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. Envision that circle, those views that we have from outer space of our earth. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. That God inhabits all of this, but it's so much bigger than anything we can ever imagine. 
And we've learned much more since Lewis's time as we've begun to explore spaces how vast, vast the galaxy and the created order really is. And it's beyond our comprehension. We talked about Flat Stanley a couple of weeks ago, and it's kind of like that. It's just more than we can get our heads around. Thirdly, heaven is the perfect, the perfection of the original Garden of Eden and reflects not only Genesis, but Revelation as well. Near the place where the fall plunged into the lake, there grew a tree, wet with the spray, half veiled in foam bows, flashing with the bright innumerable birds that flew among its branches. It rose in many shapes, a billowy foliage, huge as a Finland cloud. From every point, apples of gold gleamed through the leaves. And what Lewis is trying to get us to see here is that this is the fullness of the Garden of Eden. One of the things that Lewis loves to play with that's a theological concept that you've probably heard us talk about in sermons is the whole idea of types and shadows. And the scriptural idea of that is that there are things on this earth that are only shadows of a heavenly reality. <coughs> Excuse me. And that heavenly reality is so big and so real that it casts a shadow that we can begin to experience here on earth. And a type is an example that points us to something, but it's not the fullness of it. So, for example, you read in the Old Testament in Genesis about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is this priest of Salem, which is the same word as shalom, who mysteriously appears on the scene, bringing to Abraham gifts of bread and wine. And he is a priest forever. Now that should give you pause, because that sort of sounds like someone else who is a priest who brings bread and wine. Jesus, the one whose body is the bread and the blood is the wine. And we see the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament picks up on this and says Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek and that Melchizedek was a type and shadow of that reality. And he, the writer to the Hebrews also talks about the temple and the sacrificial system as being a shadow of that heavenly reality. And the interesting thing about this is this is an idea that even the Greeks perceived before Jesus was born. Uh, if you study Plato, you'll read about Plato's theory of forms. And Plato said that everything that we have on earth is an imperfect shadow of an ultimate beautiful reality that exists only in heaven. And he was able to discern that just from studying the natural creation. But the idea is that heaven is the place where there's all of this perfection. That just in the same way as you walk down the street, there's a shadow, and it may be a shadow that has your shape, where you can see the shape of the garments that you have on and your height and all of that. But the difference between that shadow on the sidewalk and the living, breathing, fleshly, thinking, feeling, seeing person that you are is night and day. 
And what Lewis is trying to tell us is that even the earthly garden is just a shadow. It's just a shadow compared to what the reality of heaven is. And we see, uh, again, in Genesis and Revelation, this garden. And again, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but this is portrayed in our stained glass window over the altar, that there is the river of life in the new uh, heavenly Jerusalem and the trees for the, with the leaves for the healing of the nations, the tree of life right there in that window, and the big angel over the water, almost like this waterfall. So Revelation 22, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then in Genesis. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And part of the idea here is that fruitfulness just flows out of God. He is the creator. He speaks things into existence. Just think about that. He speaks things into existence. And then fourthly, heaven is a type of solid reality with a capital R that makes anything earthly seem a mere shadow by comparison. If the grass were hard as rock, I thought, would not the water be hard enough to walk on? I tried it with one foot, and my foot did not go in. Next moment, I stepped boldly out on the surface. I fell on my face at once and got some nasty bruises. I had forgotten that though it was to me solid, it was not the less in rapid motion. And then further on, round the tree grew a belt of lilies. Think of lilies of course, associated with the Virgin Mary and also associated with Easter, this beautiful, delicate, fragrant flower. These lilies are a belt that to the ghost were an insuperable obstacle. It might as well have tried to tread down an anti-tank trap as to walk on them. That is the solid reality of heaven. It is so real and has such substance, such corporeality, that it is beyond anything that we can imagine here on earth, and that it is more real. And this is where, much as I love Hallmark because they make cards that we send to encourage people, Hallmark has done us a real disservice because a lot of people have a Hallmark card theology of heaven. And they're these cute, fat, little naked angels that are sitting on clouds with these dopey-looking harps. And we think that is what heaven is like. And what Lewis is saying is, no, nothing like that at all. It is more real, more solid than anything you think walking on this floor or walking on the earth out there is solid. Heaven is so much more, more real and more full than anything we can imagine. So some scriptures uh, from Hebrews. They serve at a sanctuary 
that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Sounds like the revelry of giants. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then in Hebrews 11, that hall of fame of faith, for he was looking forward to the city with eternal foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And my friends, this is something we cannot spend enough time thinking about because we live in a world that is full of stress and anxiety and ugliness and hatred and perversion and every evil thing, even in the midst of the beauty that God has created around us. But when we think about heaven, there is no ugliness. There is no anything that is wrong or evil or out of sorts. It is beauty that is incorporate in a way that is more solid and real than anything we have ever experienced. And when you feel cast adrift in this world, it is because you were made to live in a world that is this kind of reality that Lewis is describing. And that is what our hearts long for. And the more that you meditate on these scriptures or read things like Lewis that point you to what the scriptures say, it helps you realize that your destiny is not the dust, that your destiny is this revelry in this place of such remarkable beauty that we can't even get our heads around it. And then fifthly, and most gloriously, the presence and image of Christ permeate every aspect of heaven. And this is, to use the old 60s phrase, mind-blowing. So we don't understand how can Christ's presence and image be everywhere, but it's just like that last line, uh, e'en so Lord Jesus quickly come, and night shall be no more. They need no light, nor lamp, nor sun, for Christ will be their all. And we can't understand that, but it is true with a capital T. And then I love the way Lewis talks about this when the thunder voice comes. He says, it was quite unlike any other voice I had heard so far. It was a thunderous yet liquid voice. With an appalling certainty, I knew that the waterfall itself was speaking. And I saw now, though it did not cease to look like a waterfall, that it was also a bright angel who stood like one crucified against the rocks and poured himself perpetually down toward the forest with loud, loud joy. And this is such a beautiful image because remember the angels are immortal. The angels were created and they've spent all of their lives praising the Lord. Their, their job is to help lead the praises of heaven. But even the angel now stands like one crucified because of what Jesus has done and his sacrifice for us on the cross and pours himself perpetually down with loud joy in the same way that flesh and his blood 
down for us. And again, from Revelation, this is what the song is quoting. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, God the Almighty, and the Lamb. That somehow Jesus is the temple, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now that's imagery that's hard to get your head around, but it is glorious. And that's what we're meant for and destined for. And the more that we think about this, the things that are of this life fade to the side because of this glory. So I want us to talk just a little bit about why Lewis uses the waterfall in this chapter. And I want you to just think a little bit about waterfalls. And if I can get this to work. That's the waterfall. Hopefully I can turn it off. Waterfalls are hard to turn off. <laughs> but the point of that is that when you are in the woods and there's a big waterfall nearby, you hear it a long way off. And it is no accident that when you start driving north in the northern part of our state and go over the border into North Carolina, there are big signs, waterfall, waterfall, waterfall. We are drawn to waterfalls. There's something about a waterfall that is really appealing to the human spirit. And when you go and you watch a waterfall, it is awe-inspiring. The one that we were just listening to pours 3,000 gallons of water a second. 3,000 gallons of water a second. And part of the reason that Lewis loves this image of waterfalls is it is something that he would say is a pointer that God has put in creation very deliberately. No one can make a waterfall. People have tried to make waterfalls, and there's some pretty fake waterfalls that are in gardens, but there is nothing that is like Niagara Falls or like these other huge waterfalls. There's, we can't, even with all the things that we can do, we can't make a waterfall like that. And when we see a waterfall, we are drawn to it and drawn to its beauty. And Lewis thought that this idea of the waterfall was one of the most important things in a culture that was losing its grip on reality and losing its understanding of beauty. 
that it was one of the few pointers that's left out there that even people with no faith at all are still drawn, if they're in a forest, they are drawn to that waterfall. And Lewis uses the waterfall in his book, The Abolition of Man, which we studied last year, as the first image when he starts that book. And that book is basically about how we need to try to recover truth and how we need to try to recover beauty. And out of all the things he could have picked, he picked a waterfall. And he uses a little quotation um, from Wordsworth and Coleridge. We're going to hear more about them later in this book. Two of the great English poets. And they were out in nature. Imagine that, a time period when people used their leisure time to go out in nature and walk and contemplate things like waterfalls. So they went... And so this is a little account of what happened in 1803. We sat upon a bench placed for the sake of one of these views whence we looked down upon the waterfall and over the open country. A lady and gentleman, more expeditious tourists than ourselves, came to the spot. They left us at the seat, and we found them again at another station above the falls. Coleridge, who's always good-natured enough to enter into conversation with anyone whom he meets in his way, began to talk with the gentleman, who observed that it was a majestic waterfall. Coleridge was delighted with the accuracy of the epithet, particularly as he had been settling in his own mind the precise meaning of the words grand, majestic, sublime, etc., and had discussed the subject with Wordsworth at some length the day before. Yes, sir, says Coleridge, it is a majestic waterfall, Sublime and beautiful, replied his friend. Poor Coleridge could not make an answer, and not very desirous to continue the conversation, came to us and related the story, laughing heartily. And so this is a little bit from um, The Abolition of Man. Gaius and Titius, who are these people who wrote a book saying there's no such thing as real objective beauty, they believe we cannot make value judgments about an object but we can only describe our feelings toward it. As they indicate, when we appear to be saying something very important about something, actually we're only saying something about our own feelings. And what Coleridge was getting at there that disturbed him, it's not easy to see right off the bat because the word beautiful has changed its meaning. So in that time period, 1803, if you use the word beautiful, it would be sort of in the same way we might use the word kind of pretty. It's a demeaning, somewhat demeaning term that was more likely to refer to just physical beauty of a woman. It was still a compliment, but it's not anywhere close to the same category as majestic or sublime or any of those kinds of things. And what Lewis is trying to get at here is there are some things that are objectively beautiful with a capital B that merit the description sublime, majestic, grand, and that if we demean those things to say it's only when we feel good around them that they're worthy, then we have lost a whole aspect of truth. So Lewis disagrees with this statement, this is sublime. First, Lewis points out from a practical standpoint, the first man could not have intended to say the waterfall makes him feel sublime. If he'd been speaking about his feelings, he would have said the waterfall makes him feel humbled and awed. More importantly, however, Lewis disagrees with the fundamental aspects of this philosophy. 
Lewis rejects the author's belief that all attempts to judge value merely reflect the subjective feelings of the observer. And the interesting thing is in this book that Lewis was so annoyed about, these people are, it's a book for teachers, um, and they're telling the teachers that their prime task is disenchantment. Disenchantment, to do away with the idea of beauty or mystery or truth, unweaving the spell of value-laden language so that instead children can control it, that they're in charge, we're in charge, we're not placed in a world full of mystery and beauty and awe in the presence of God. We are here on this rock that just happened to be here. We came out of the primal goo and we're in charge of it. Uh, it's very, very sad. But it's, it's no accident that this waterfall is showing up in the great divorce. Uh, this waterfall is an image that Lewis thinks is almost an archetype for what's going wrong in the culture. And so this waterfall that Wordsworth and Coleridge went to is called the Coraline Waterfall. And in Lewis's thinking, this waterfall was an external object of nature that merited, just because of how it is, the designation sublime. Not because the viewer had sublime feelings, but because the waterfall itself was in itself sublime. An awesome embodiment of cascading liquid crystal, wet, translucent, a synesthetic sonance of natural art to human sense by its physical existence. That it just is and the beauty of it is because God made it that way, which is so different from saying, oh, I think it's sort of pretty because it accords with my ideas about that. So it's interesting because waterfalls are deeply rooted in the scriptures as well. And you'll see this idea of waterfall and living water. The word in the Hebrew is very similar because living water is water that's pulsing and moving and not stagnant. So from Jeremiah, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, cisterns that cannot hold water. Now there could be a whole sermon on that, but I'm gonna keep going. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then Jesus with the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Lewis uses these waterfalls in his writing and we just uh, talked about the one that's in the great divorce but there's also one in the last battle, the last of the Chronicles of Narnia, and it is the entrance into Aslan's country, which is Lewis's metaphor for heaven. So it's not an accident that the entrance to Aslan's country is the most beautiful pointer symbolic thing that we find here on earth. So just listen to this description. It's a little late, so I'm not gonna ask you to close your eyes because you might just go off. Uh, but just try to listen. 
It was a special reason which made Eustace presently shout, I say, steady, look what we're coming to. And well he might, before them cauldron pool, and beyond the pool the high unclimbable cliffs, and pouring down the cliffs thousands of tons of water every second, flashing like diamonds in some places, and dark glassy green in others, the great waterfall, and already the thunder of it was in their ears. Don't stop, further up and further in, called Farsight the eagle, tilting his flight a little upwards. It's very well for him, said Eustace, but Jewel the unicorn also cried out, don't stop, further up and further in, take it in your stride. His voice could only just be heard above the roar of the water. But next moment, everyone saw he had plunged into the pool and helter-skelter behind him. With splash after splash, all the others did the same. The water was not biting cold, as all of them, and especially Puzzle the donkey, expected, but of a delicious, foamy coolness. They all found they were swimming straight for the waterfall itself, but before Jill had time to notice all these things fully, she was going up the waterfall herself. It was the sort of thing that would have been quite impossible in our world. Even if you hadn't been drowned, you would have been smashed to pieces by the terrible weight of the water against the countless jags of rock. But in that world, you could do it. You went on up and up with all kinds of reflected lights flashing at you from the water and all manner of colored stones flashing through it till it seemed as if you were climbing up light itself and always higher and higher till the sense of height would have terrified you if you could be terrified. But later it was only gloriously exciting. And then at last one came to the lovely smooth green curve in which the water poured over the top and found that one was out on the level of the river above the waterfall. The current was racing away behind you, but you were such a wonderful swimmer that you could make headway against it. And this is Lewis's image for coming in to Aslan's country, that you not only see, hear the music of this waterfall, but you are in it. You are entering into this beauty where it is all around you and you are able to transcend this human frail body with your resurrection body so that you can literally go up this waterfall. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, 
my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I really think Lewis was thinking about Psalm 42 when he wrote this, and it is just a beautiful image of the contrast between the way it is in this world of people taunting us, where is your God, and my soul being cast down and then these two images, first the type and shadow of leading worship, being in worship in the earthly tabernacle, and then seeing the waterfall that is the type and shadow of the waterfall of heaven. And I want to just close with this part from Augustine, again, talking about how important it is that we have rightly ordered loves. Because when we get our loves straight, and our love of God and our love of his word and of his kingdom is first, it shapes the way we approach our lives in reality. Augustine said this, living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. In other words, that when we get our loves in the right order, it will transform our experience of reality. And so often what we love is the approval of men, and so long as we love the approval of men or we love getting the political sphere the way we'd like it to be, we're doomed to live in misery. But if our love is set on the Lord and the things of his kingdom, then all these other things fall into place. From Philippians, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And this is the view that the psalmist was talking about. This is where the snows melt to come into the waterfalls the psalmist was describing. And it is a reminder um, of that heavenly country. And it's interesting when you think about Lewis's description of the white shore and the far green country and the mountain peaks in the back. It's awfully similar to what we see here in the Holy Land. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost, that the kernel of what he was really seeking even in his most depraved wishes will be there 
beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we confess to you how preoccupied we are with the things of this world which can never satisfy while you offer us living water. Lord, we pray that you would fire our hearts with longing for your kingdom, for the beauty of the heavenly country, and that as we contemplate that beauty and the beauty, Lord Jesus, of you permeating every aspect and being the light and the temple of that country, that our hearts would be moved to praise and that the cares of this world would drop away and that you would cause us to live in such a way that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your love for us and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.